So, we kind of lied, sort of, yeah, we lied a little bit unintentionally. This is not being filmed or recorded. Wait, they a, still can't see my face? No, they still can't see your face, it's Mike. It's being filmed, Mike. <laughs> we were going to experiment with filming, but it ultimately was not meant to be, as we didn't get to our tailgate until about 3 o'clock, which we prioritized the consumption of beverages and hot dogs, despite me losing the knife, despite the tongs being lost in the cooler. We're not we, going to lose the soldier that was had fallen even before the battle started. And we are not going to lose a pod, we're just going to record it on our way back to Jordan's house using Mike's phone as another experiment. So this is the American Soccer Broadcast, episode two of the ASBN Tour variety. We are, it is, what time is it? 10.50. It is 10.50 on a Saturday night. We are somewhere very, very close. I think we're in Indiana now, right? No, we're still in Ohio. We're in Ohio. We're in the kingdom of Ohio, progressing our way back to Jordan's house, and we're, we're going to talk soccer, because we're all in the same car, and we got to do this. We got to do it for the, do it for you beautiful, beautiful people, so. Can we do one quick touch of housekeeping? If, if you hear, point the bottom at me during the course of this podcast, know that nothing uncouth is happening. It's just that we're recording this on a phone with the microphone at the bottom. <laughs> and this is the American Soccer Broadcast. My name is Alex Ryder. I am joined in the back seat, right behind me actually, by my co-host and a guy that is currently giving me a wet willy because he's bitter about... The fact that I, Manchester I not, United lost four to one. I would not say bitter because it's a preseason match, so who even cares? Yeah, Jordan Hawkins. Hi. Say it in another language. Try one we haven't done today. I don't know anymore. Never mind. Unless, unless I know. Klingon. Do you know Mandarin? I was just gonna say, do you know Klingon? <laughs> oh my god. Yamach, ah please. And. To my right, in the co-pilot seat, and also acting as a substitute producer so that I can drive, Mike Wheeler, special friend of the show. Hey. Does that make him a GFOP? I, I, what, what, instead of GFOP, what would special friend of the show be? SF, SFOP. SFOP. Fop. (laughs) I am... The Sfop. Hashtag the Sfop. That's what it's going to call it now. Sfop. Sfop. So, with this special Sfop and Jordan and myself, we're going to catch up. We're going to talk World Cup. We're going to talk domestic expansion. The USL D3 taking shape. We're going to talk supporter culture and the war on supporter culture in North America and we're going to do it all while driving 
use while using an iPhone. That sound good to you guys? I don't think they can respond. I don't think this is like they, a. They don't get a choice. I don't think this they is don't a, get to have an opinion. This isn't a give and take. I was more referring to the two of you, but if the <laughs> listeners have their opinions, they will voice them on Twitter at American Soccer Broadcast on Facebook or ASB Podcast on Twitter. So, Jordan, keeper of the list, the only person that can actually do things right now because Mike is pointing a microphone at me and you're in the back seat. What do you want to talk about first? What's on your list, man? Let's talk about the World Cup because the World Cup happened. The World Cup happened and left an empty void in our hearts. As I said before, it was it left a post-mortem depression. So... Real quick, just to go around the horn, what was everybody's favorite World Cup match? Oh, there's there's no question. There actually is a correct answer to this question, and that is absolutely Japan Belgium. Like it exactly. It wasn't even close. That match had literally everything. And I I didn't actually get to watch that game because I was at an amusement park. Uh, Holiday World, which I actually recommend everybody check out, but that's beside the point. Not uh, a sponsor. Not a sponsor. Hashtag yes. not a sponsor. That, that is an actual uh, endorsement, not a paid endorsement. Uh, I was at this park and I randomly decided to check my phone and check the score, and I saw that Japan was up to nothing. Uh, also had that's interesting and I guess we would be on par for what this World Cup had done before uh, referring to Germany going out in the going going out in the group stage uh, Russia beating Spain um, and then I checked two two minutes later and I said to my brother, who was also checking the game, like 17 minutes later, Belgium had tied it. And then what happened, Mike? The just absolute pandemonium icing on the cake. That final goal in that game was just absolutely remarkable. Just breathtaking. It it started through, it went through uh, De Bruyne, didn't it? Yes. And And it was all initiated. as As everything Belgium did. Yeah. It went through De Bruyne. Initiated and, from a keeper roll. You know, rolled just, out from the keeper. A perfect dis- distribution to start a counter from Courtois. It went to De Bruyne. Uh, just a brilliant dummy off Lukaku. Oh, the, maybe the play of the World Cup. Will not get the credit it deserves. That dummy from Lukaku and it still to, has me speechless. And, it's, and it went to Mounier, who just smashed it off. So I think we agreed on the the game of the cup. Did you have a, another opinion? I, you haven't seen that one yet, I right? have yet to watch that match, so I can't definitively say that that was my favorite. My favorite, purely because of where I watched it, was England versus Colombia. The first half of England versus Colombia, I consumed at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Grand Cayman, 
and then hopped a taxi and a water taxi from there to the dock and from the dock back to my cruise ship and I ran from there to the bar on the cruise ship just in time for the second half to start and the drama of that match and watching at least 50 English men revel in the fact that they were winning one to zero only to have that hope taken away from them in the most British way possible giving up a equalizer in the dying breaths of regular time and then having it just drag on and on through added time and the drama of the penalties well, I mean, England is historically fantastic at penalties, so... Yeah, no. There, there was no sarcasm in your points. <laughs> this was the first time in a World Cup that England had won on penalties, and it broke a curse and evoked an incredible rendition. And this was actually my first ever exposure to it of It's Coming Home, sung by about 40... British gentleman in a pub on a cruise ship I watched two of them just rip their shirts off and twirl, twirl them around like they were kids and that was fun for me so that was my personal choice but again I didn't watch the Belgium Japan game so and, and honestly the whole it's coming home is probably my favorite story out of this World Cup because the memes, man. The the, the memes, uh, it it's this whole thing started as a joke. Well, and it started. It's not like this hadn't happened before. Wasn't the original song? The original song was written for uh, France. No, it was not written for France. It was written for. Um, was, I believe it was the Euros the, the next Euros after that World Cup huh after the 1990 the World the, the 1990 World Cup uh, the 1992 uh, Euros if I remember correctly this was after England had gone to the semi-final against West Germany and this song was written for that Euros, which was in England. And by the time England played Scotland in, I think it was the group stage, that song had just exploded. And again, England went out in, as England does, and it it just kind of just got dropped, and then you come to this this World Cup, and it gets resurrected. It, it gets resurrected as a joke because, and you get the feeling from everybody that's English from the UK that and you get the feeling that international games are are a chore because they're just like an annoying inner interruption a chore from the Premier League because look at the uh, England's most recent record 
they barely got out of the group in 2010 in South Africa. They placed fourth in their group with Costa Rica, Italy, and who else was it? I don't remember. That was the group of death, though. That much I do remember from that World Cup. But and they, they placed fourth. They placed last in the group in Brazil, and then they went out famously against Iceland in 2016 in France. So they came in with a lot of detriment, a lot of baggage, and that was kind of added the fuel to the fire for this song with their, this younger team. Very few of them had actually participated in the previous World Cup cycle. It's totally expected to go out the way England does. and But instead, it got very dramatic, and... I mean, you went through the group stage, I mean, you expect England to beat Tunisia and Panama. And it kind of grew from there, and then you played Belgium, and then it kind of died, and then first you beat Colombia through penalties, which broke a curse, then you played Sweden, and it's everybody felt it was really coming home. And it led to all those memes, it led to all the jokes, it led to the song becoming mainstream and more of a celebration to play on the previous despair. And that's what made it such a great story. It powered Harry Kane to the golden to win the golden boot. But it ultimately they came short and then went flat both in the semifinal and in the third place game and became the England that everybody was used to seeing because they just ran out of gas. Does Harry Kane have the best hair in soccer right now, by the way? Yes. Here's the problem with that. This was the last World Cup where Harry Kane will definitely have that title because in the next World Cup, he's going to look like Wayne Rooney. And by 2026, it's go we're going to have Wayne Rooney coaching Harry Kane at DC United. Wow. And... I would honestly dis- disagree with that statement of Harry Kane having the best hair at the World Cup. I would respectively throw in Fellaini's name. And yes. his magnificent throw. It is pretty special. It is special. Special is the right word for it. That is definitely for sure. But here, I was trying to think of the most ridiculous and inane sports talk question. Put this English national team and pull a, I guess like a Westworld situation and implant them into the Premier League, where do they finish in the Premier League? Are there, are, okay, counter question, are there clone counterparts still playing for their current clubs? No. They finished first. Really? Yeah, I do think that. The best defenders and the best attackers play for the top teams that would be expected to win the Premier League. And what if I said no? With the exception of Liverpool. Liverpool's only dominant contributor 
for that team was Jordan Henderson, and Jordan Henderson almost single-handedly brought that down by missing his PK against Columbia, which is why I don't think we'll see very much of him and why we definitely didn't see any of him today. I'll be too busy cheering for Solanke because her... No, what's the name of the guy that did the bicycle kick? Shakiri. Shakiri. I always wanted to t- say Shakira, but Shakira, Shakira. Shakiri, Shakiri, with his bicycle kick that even Jordan admitted was really good. Probably the greatest goal I've ever seen live. Not even. Oh, live, yes, absolutely. So, yeah, I, that's where I, I stand on I, that. I would honestly put them. Were Burnley placed this past year? Wow, jeez. Because let, let's be honest, they like I said, you expect them to be Tunisia, you expect them to be Panama. You, uh, their bench could not be Belgium's bench. Uh, just barely beat Colombia. They handled Sweden pretty well, but once they came up against some quality play against Croatia. Which is a sentence you wouldn't think to utter, to be completely honest. And not to say anything about, about Croatia, Croatia is a great team. They have two players in to, to, two of the best teams in the, in the world. One being Luka Modric, who won the Golden Ball, and Ivan Rakitic. And they have Manzukic up front, who, in my opinion, is one of the most underrated strikers in the world. Okay. Well, I don't entirely agree with that as far as the placement, but, I mean, it w- it's the Premier League, so anything is truly possible. This is a league where Leicester City outplayed everyone just two years ago. And they have a budget of a lot less. Which will never happen again. No, it will not. So, Um, After this World Cup, how did the game change? And how does that change it for the United States? Okay, I'm going to answer your question with a question. Um, How well do you think VAR was implemented? Oh. And there it is. Yes, I was... And that's literally... what I was baiting for. That's all I... That's what I was baiting for, and that's what I got. I Be- was I was hoping Go. that I would basically close out this segment with a... By the way, can we talk about how well VAR worked throughout the entire World Cup? And the, You're right, exactly right, Mike. You're exactly right, because... Instead of what has been implemented, whether it's in the FA for the FA Cup or in MLS, being the two biggest examples, this World Cup redefined VAR and put them in a separate room, gave them the definitive power, and made it dynamic enough where... All of the calls that were made at this World Cup were largely agreed upon and 
I would say it was more than likely the most fair World Cup. When it came to refereeing, someone claimed that there were some bad calls that involved... There, there were some bad calls, and like you said, VAR was very well implemented, but just like in anywhere else, and whenever a new concept is introduced, it's going to have some wrinkles. Namely, um, in, the, the fi- in the final, you had Griezmann go down outside the box, which everybody I've talked to, mostly everybody I've talked to, agreed that it was a dive, that he went down very easily. And with the Perisic handball in the box, that led to a penalty. Well, that, that's not so much VAR's fault as it is the definition of a handball, which still to this day... Still, still to this day, it's still... What they either do, make what it the this, letter of the law... Make it the letter of the law. This, what this, it's, what this is, is... This is what it is, and it doesn't change. And it's going to be like this every single time, not... Was this, how far was his hand from the ball? How far did he have to react? What it's, kind of algorithm is written to make this decision? Or what, what house is Jupiter in? <laughs> I think if that the is. The alien is purple. How many apples do I have? <laughs> I think the definition of handball is forever going to be the definition of a catch in the NFL. <laughs> it will continue to transition, to evolve, to change. I heard the, uh, what's the phrase they love to use? Was he in a natural position? Did he complete the process? Did he make a football move? (laughs) What? Uh, Just like with a handball. What's a football move? (laughs) I think overall, though, far, like I can't even tell you how many times watching these games and working from home, I got to watch more World Cup games than I ever have before. I can't tell you how many times the announcers came over and said that's another victory for VAR. It was just over and over and over again. So well implemented. And now here's the question. Do we get a documentary about the 2018 World Cup called Victory for VAR? ESPN, if you're listening, you do have a series called 30 for 30. Exactly. Just saying. So... Now, do you think that MLS will actually be intelligent enough to implement this type of VAR in any kind of foreseeable future? I'm not going to contribute to this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Let's have another conversation. Do we need to talk about the pitch invasion during the final? It happened. I muttered to Mike. Mike and I watched the final in his parents' pool. And I muttered to Mike... That is definitely some kind of political protest. We'll look it up later. Yeah, it was. It turned out it was a political protest from. I don't want to say this online. Female, female genitalia riot. Not another word for kitty cats. Cat riot. Cat riot. Let's go with that. It was. This group has been very adamant about the uh, Vladimir Putin and his administration and they wanted to make 
a statement. And the only problem I have with this to the casual uh, World Cup watcher, this is just, to me, this just comes off as someone just wanting to get attention. I think they would be much better off uh, making a banner saying, for example, Putin out. Or hashtag save the crew. Whatever. Vladimir Putin, Anthony Precourt. Basically the same person. Anyway, I I agree with what they were doing. I think I just think there there is a better way of going about this. And along with, um, I think an iconic picture of going out of this is. Killing Mbappe, high-fiving one of them, one of the pigeon majors. Very good. Can we just briefly talk about how terrifying France is going to be in four years? Oh my, oh my gosh. Like, should we just give them the 2022 yeah, just, World Cup? Just Didier Deschamps said after this World Cup final that this team is still in, still in a work in progress. That terrifies me. Yeah. Okay, here's here's a hypothetical for you to just kind of cement the whole France thing. If France gets put in the same group as Qatar in the 2022 World Cup, what is the final score of that group stage match? 8-0. to zero. Yeah, I, I think they'll need to implement a mercy rule. <laughs> no added time is the only mercy rule I can think of. <laughs> That'll be ugly, that's for sure. I'm going to guess it's going to be 11 to nothing. Just straight up murder. I just like the average age of that team is so young. And they're so ridiculously talented. I, I said going into this World Cup, France was the most talented team at this World Cup. It just they, I don't think anybody knew how Deschamps was going to set his team up, and I don't think he knew that until uh, until after uh, they played the U.S. in Lyon in their final warm-up match. Which they, we helped them, as you said in the last show. In our previous episode, I think the U.S. helped Deschamps know what he was going to do, because... We also use CD Bay makes if CD Bay makes a better touch, Julian Green does not score that goal. Julian Green likes scoring in Europe. One maybe final comment to close out the World Cup. We'll keep saying that, but does Spain lose in the way that they lost if they don't let their manager go? No, nope. three days before the World Cup starts. They don't. They go a lot farther. And you say this slightly out of bitterness because you lost the, our group pool for the World Cup, which resulted you in you today buying beverages at, and snacks at the stadium. And you had Spain going pretty far, if my memory serves me correctly. I mean, pretty far. Them, I had them winning the, the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that's as far as you can take them. I, I would ask one more question to close us, close us out of the World Cup. What to you is the most 
iconic image coming out of this World Cup. Oh, the trophy lift with everybody soaking wet the, with the confetti the all over them. There's nothing in this world more magical than wet confetti. I I like the uh, the picture of Vladimir Putin shaking hands with the whatever it was Saudi king, and then like I think it was eight, one of the princes. I eight think. seconds later, Russia scores, and Putin's doing that like weird side grin at him. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? <laughs> Uh, those, those are two of my favorite images. Um, I, for me, and this is an unfortunate one, Neymar rolling on the ground. Oh. And the memes that resulted in, in the honorable mention column, is all of the different Neymar rolling memes that have single-handedly destroyed his transfer fee, oh, in yeah. my opinion. What a dick. What a, just, just a disgrace to the game. And this is going to give ammunition to people saying soccer players are just weak men who just fall down on the ground. Or as Alexi Lawless put it, tattooed millionaires. Yeah. The exclamation point for me on the Neymar rolling was there was an MPSL game that occurred, I think during the World Cup, that literally had as their halftime entertainment they had 20 guys come out of the stands and see who could Neymar roll from the center of the pitch to the touchline fastest. Oh my gosh. Yes, it was as excellent as it sounds, but what a disgrace to the game. Yeah. And and honestly, he's better than that. He does not need to fall down on the ground and be dramatic. He is much better than that. Well, are, we, are we actually wrapping up the I, World Cup now? Okay, what what are we? 36 minutes into this? We're going to finally transition out of the World Cup? Best That's, World Cup I've ever been yeah. a part of, by Best the way. Best World Cup by more, far. More penalties, more uh, own goals, more goals after 90 minutes than in any other World Cup. The only scoreless game in this World Cup was France against Denmark in the last game of the group stage. A game that literally meant nothing. So. Okay, so here's the next question, and it's going to kind of be asked simpler than I asked it earlier. What's next? What was the... What were the thoughts of U.S. soccer fans? Where were our attentions focused the day after the World Cup ended? I, we kind of answered it in this previous episode. Who's going to be our manager? Who's going to be our manager? Who's going to direct the academies? Who's going... And where are these players going to come from? And one of those... One of those key things has been continuing to grow, and it's still, in my opinion, not getting enough press, and that's why we keep talking about it, and that's USL Division Three. A lot of people, I actually, on while I was on vacation this past month, read about two-thirds of the Phil Rollins book, Def- uh, Defying Expectations, and one of the things that he talked about was the history 
of the USL and how at one point there were actually two divisions, a Division Two and a Division Three. They were much smaller at the time. They didn't have academies. It was all just for minor league effect. They weren't all necessarily associated with the with MLS teams as MLS was still implementing their reserve league at the time. But when MLS wanted to merge the reserve league and USL, some of the clubs had a problem with it, which resulted into the NASL splitting apart, which then led to less quality of play, less competition, and ultimately harmed lower division development for years to come, and we saw a small blip of that in the lack of qualification. I wouldn't say it is by any means the main reason we qualify, but it is a reason. And looking forward, next year, for the first time in almost 10 years, we will have a comprehensive pyramid that has a defined league for each level of the pyramid with MLS at the top with 24 teams thanks to FC Cincinnati joining from USL USL Division 2 with what appears to be 30, it's either 36 or 38 teams depending on what happens with Austin and the crew and we've got USL D3, which has two clubs coming up from um, the 4th Division USL non-professional clubs to be professional clubs. And then you also had Toronto 2 recently announced that they will be leaving USL D2 and going to USL 3 which also makes it pretty darn clear that a number of MLS clubs are going to do the same, as I've theorized previously on this show. That being said, I I pose this question, how does this comprehensive link-up from non-professional to professional help the U.S. develop over the next four years and bring players that are in smaller towns throughout the country grow. There's a somewhere, there's a 16 year old in a more rural town, like I'll, I'll, give, I'll give an example there's a 16 year old somewhere in Phoenix that wouldn't normally have the opportunity to play professional soccer, but because of Phoenix Rising in USL, in their growing academy, thanks to Digby Drogba, he gets to he'll get to play, and he might have a chance to play for the U.S. in four years. Is this going to be the main thing that helps us, or is there going to be another factor? What do you guys think? I think a lot of things need to happen. One, like you said, a a gradual transition from non-professional to professional and 
we have to get rid of pay to play. There can't be those. But, you, you can't that, have it. That, you, that can't be in place because I can name off the top of my head on one on one hand how many staples in the national team are of Hispanic heritage. I can name Omar Gonzalez, George Villafania, and that's it. Can you name any more? No. That's yeah, the two I can think of. Alejandro Pedroia, but even then, I'm not. And, yeah, Alejandro. And when you have pay to play, you have you have a vast majority of your player pool that you are missing out. That are either getting snatched up by Mexico, or just falling off, falling off, and never developing into the players they could potentially be. Exactly. And that—that's beside the point. From the fact that we already have to compete with the likes of bait professional baseball and their very, very set in stone development schema with minor league baseball and high school and college and all that. And you've also got the competition of football with high school football being very regimented feeding into the college system and the college system feeding into the professional system. Same goes with basketball. In basketball even took it a step further and made development leagues. Exactly to bring new players that might not get their first, might not be of the full quality, but could still develop into great players. The the development tracks in all these other sports, like you just said, are very much set in stone. And the same can be said for uh, football teams across the ocean in Europe. You... You play in your youth leagues. You play at wherever on the street on in these youth teams or travel teams, and you get noticed by clubs, and then you enter their academies, and then you go through their academies, and then you start playing in their uh, under 17, under 18, under 20, what have you, until eventually you're on the big stage playing for your club in the championship, League One, League Two, Premier League, whatever it is. So what we need to have are development tracks are very much set in stone. This is how it is, this is how it's gonna be, and this is what, this, this, and this is what you need to do and need to become the player that you want to be. And making sure that these clubs, whether it's a youth club, a local youth club that ends up sending a player to a professional club or a professional academy, or it's a professional academy sending a player across the ocean, like Vancouver, for example, with Alfonso Davies, making sure that the clubs involved get paid. I said it last time, I'll say it again. Alfonso Davies got a bunch of money offered to Vancouver. Vancouver took it, but also passed the wealth 
and much needed funds down to his original youth club that they pulled him from. And I'll give you another example. I think Christian Pulisic recognized this problem and his dad took him to Germany and he entered the academy at Dortmund. And look where he is now. And the only reason he didn't get to play as much as he did early on was because of the labor laws in Germany. We don't have that necessarily here. You can have professional athletes at the age of, I believe, 15. The record for MLS is 15 years old, isn't it? And if you get these players in young and they're good and they have the quality, bring them in, show them off, help them grow, and then you send them across the ocean and you feel motivated to do that because you make the money. Don't just give MLS all that money. Make sure that these clubs can invest that right back into their academies so that they can create more of these players so that these players are available for selection by the national teams. And I would and also, they don't... Sorry, Jordan. I would, I would also say, let's not put these grandiose expectations. I, I think... We talk about Christian Pulisic raising the World Cup trophy in eight, eight years' time in Jerry World or the new stadium in Los Angeles. It's actually neither of those. It's looking like it's going to be MetLife. It's it, probably going to be MetLife. Which is a, a crime against humanity, but that's beside the point. But we need to say these things with a great assault. We cannot have another Freddie Aduce situation. And that's exactly what it was. You can't... We put all these expectations on Adu, and he just... He languished from team to team to team, and he never went anywhere. And we never got what we expected out of him. I mean, Christian Pulisic is... We say he's going to be the savior for the men's national team. He's not. He's not going to... We put all these... He's not going to be the level of... We expect him to be on the level of Messi or Ronaldo. That's most likely not going to happen. He needs to have these players around him and they need to help each other to get where they need to be. Absolutely. Anything to add to that, Mike? I just think the U.S. looks at soccer all wrong at this point. I mean, I, I look overseas and you know, you look at the way that these clubs look at young players and young talent, and they see it as an investment in the club's future, either that the player might play for that team or that they could develop them to a point where they could sell them. Uh, you know, that, that raises the caliber of play across the entire entire board, all the way up to professional. And I just don't think that's how the U.S. looks at soccer at all. We look at it as some privilege that, you know, a small percentage of of kids actually have the opportunity to be able to play at a high level because of the cost of it. Uh, so, I, I mean, I completely agree with Jordan. Pay to play has to go. That has to be a priority for American soccer because until that occurs, we're using such a small percentage of the talent available in this country 
that it's practically criminal. And the bottom line is we need to drastically rethink our development system. And they're doing it with things like bio-bending, which it, it's bio-bending, right? Where they put the players that are excelling in their age groups into higher age groups to create more competition for them and helping them to grow more. That's what it is now. Bio-bending? Could be. So that's something that started and has been studied and could result in some great finds between now and the next cycle, end of this cycle. So we'll see. If you guys don't have anything else to put into that, we're you've got about 20 minutes left in this episode. I want to bring up another topic that's near and dear to all of our hearts, and that's supporter culture. We need we we put pressure on these players to perform. But there's also pressure on these clubs to stay relevant and to stay involved both in their communities and in the game as a whole. And there's been a very interesting war developing. This And this is taking place mostly at the top in MLS between the people that care the most about these teams when it comes to displays. And, and I know I, I can get in trouble with people who are season ticket holders but aren't, don't consider themselves supporters so much as fans. I agree that you are just as valuable, but you are not always just as vocal. Yeah, it's... And you can say... Um, you can say well, you care the most about your team, What Matt... But what matters is, I don't think... Okay, let me rephrase this. You can support your team however you want. You can uh, support them by repping them on your person, whether it's a hat, a jersey, a scarf. Or all of the above. Or all of the above. Or you can be in the supporter section uh, singing, chanting waving flags, blowing smoke, and bringing the B-roll footage that's going to be used for every commercial for the rest of the year. For, for 90 minutes. But what matters is whether you care for your club. Yeah, and I bring this all up because of this war that's taken place. In the past, during this season alone, there have been a number of bans and a number of unacknowledgments of official supporter clubs. And I believe, Jordan, you've got the list. The biggest one that has led to the most outpouring is a club that arguably should not be stepping on the toes of their biggest supporters when they already struggle to bring people in the gates and bring in people that actually care about their club and about the beautiful game. And that's from the Chicago Fire, a team that actually just sold their um, a large portion of their 
ownership stake to a local investment firm, which made it pretty clear that they're on their way out of this ownership group and changing hands. But it doesn't change the fact that what is the name of the supporters group? It's section 108. Section Section 101. 101. The Section 101. Section 101. But the the group that was originally banned was uh, Sector 8. There you go. I was just trying to it's, blend the two. The Sector 8, uh, which, I, as I understand it, is mostly Latino. Latino. And they're the more rowdy, vocal, outspoken group. The fans that Chicago needs the most. And because of something that took place at a match sometime in the past two months, I believe it was in early June, where a smoke bomb was let off, which in many MLS stadiums is allowed, they were, they were suspended and all of their tickets were refunded and taken away. They groped off the section. No, no, no. They chain-linked off the section. It was insulting. That was perhaps the most insulting part of this entire thing. Was they, they literally off this, chained off their section with this, padlocks. And left this entire section of the stadium completely empty. Which led to the 101s doing the same thing in solidarity. And that's a problem... For a club that's already struggling and is about to face the threat, the both the local threat of the, a USL managed by a very, very prominent family in Chicago, with a stadium on the river, no less, right? And own, ownership by the Cubs. Like, like you said, like we've said in previous episodes, what we're going to see is essentially an exodus. Fans moving from the Chicago Fire to this new club, whatever it's going to be called, much like what you saw with uh, the creation of NYCFC, Red Bull fans going to this shiny new club, and just like what you saw with LA Galaxy and the brand new Los Angeles football club. And you can't have these, you can't, it's one thing to have to compete, it's another to for, to give your supporters who are there to support you to, despite what you might do for their club, do to their club that they love, and to force them out. I mean, what they're doing is giving them a reason to leave. And same thing with DC. DC fans have been patiently waiting for this new stadium. They didn't get many home games this year, but due to some oversight, two of their supporter clubs weren't given any ticket allowment. It's okay. the same thing. I, I, have read up, I have read up on this story, and here's what happened. Uh, what you have in D.C. are three supporter groups. You have the Screaming Eagles, you have the DC Ultras, and you have uh, La Barra Brava. As I understand it, the latter two of those groups, DC Ultras and 
uh, the Black Barbara are to have been there since the beginning. And what happened was, um, what happens with supporter culture and support groups and tickets is the club will give these groups uh, an allotment of tickets at a reduced price and then these groups will sell them to the supporters in within those groups at a small markup and what those markups do those added fees or whatever we want to call them they pay for food at tailgates they pay for drinks they pay for banners they pay for the tifos that you unveil before the game and the president of the club came out and said that certain uh, members of these groups, he didn't say any names, were skimming off the top and taking money from these tickets and lining their pockets. And as a result, these groups did not get tickets to the opener at this new, shiny new stadium and were banned from the stadium. Now, and is there any proof to that? He did not give any proof. He didn't say any names. He was just... came out and said that... came out with these accusations that these members were lining their pockets. Again, he did not say any names. And La Barra Brava and DC Ultras took very much offense to this. They were outside the stadium before, during, and after the game protesting. Which, that's horrible. That's horrible for DC, one of the original clubs who is finally getting their own stadium, who is after finally... They, after they waited, what, eight years? They Look, 20. They've waited 20 years. Everybody's like, oh, they've waited eight years. No, they've waited 22 years. They, they and they, they, they and got their home. They got their home after playing 20 years in a crumbling stadium that probably should have been out of use when they started. And the, and the result is you've got in you've got your most loyal supporters protesting you because you because you're, you're making, with the, you're making accusations that these members, which, again, he did not name, are lining their pockets and skimming out the top. Punishing it, even if this was true for some of them, don't punish the whole collective. Punish those involved, make sure they can't be involved anymore as much as you can with independent groups. These independent groups operate in a way as a member of one of these groups. And if nothing else, these these issues need to be handled within the group. And that's how they're done. The the group saying you are out. You are not going to be involved with this group, this club, and just cutting out the cancer. And then once the cancer is removed, let them back in. And that's not what is being done here. That or they are not communicating that to the press and to the public. And that is an even worse problem. All this to be being said, 
these are just two examples of a number of incidents of supporters having to fight just to be supporters of their club. And if U.S. soccer and MLS and USL and all these organizations that are creating this more firm framework for us to build on as a fan base and as a nation in this beautiful game, we need to make sure that the we're not shooting ourselves in the foot. There's not hindrances that can make it harder. And once we do that, we're going to have a better chance of bringing more people in the gates, more chances of creating more revenue, more chances of more players becoming top quality. And that's what's going to help contribute to a stronger U.S. soccer and a stronger game game in this country. And I think what you're seeing is something similar to what happened in England in the 80s and the 90s with this uh, hooligan phenomenon that culminated in the Hillsborough disaster. Just this mentality that soccer in England is identified with these fat, bald Englishmen starting fights in the stands in the streets. And that's not what football is, and that's not what supporter culture is. That's how, and that's how we're going to improve it, and that's how the game is going to grow. But what needs to happen is we need to have actual conversations. Absolutely, and that's that's why we're here. That's why we continue to do this podcast. That's why we took a break to rest up and enjoy the beautiful game. But it's why we're ultimately in a car talking to each other about it and bringing good friends like Mike in to talk about so all right so from a very personal perspective on the supporter culture uh, you know I I was at the game right after Cupgate I was with Alex um, we were at you, the you want to explain what Cupgate was yes <laughs> so Cupgate if you weren't uh, watching the Orlando City uh, Atlanta game at the end of that game uh, there was a, a couple controversial calls this is back in May yeah there was a couple controversial calls uh, there was some, some flopping that occurred, and the Orlando City fans got just irate uh, and started throwing plastic cups onto the pitch. Uh, it's something that should never happen, agreeable, uh, I think, by everybody that's a, a true soccer fan. That should never occur. Uh, so there was some very strict uh, policies put in place. There was a, a ton of bands handed out. Uh, but I was actually at the match after that, the next home match, um, and it was just a, an incredibly uncomfortable feeling from the moment we marched in as we walked through the security and everybody had bolo sheets for who was uh, banned from the stadium. So all the security that had the, the bolo sheets, and they were literally, if you looked anything like anything on the bolo sheet, they would pull you aside and get second opinions on who you were. 
um, all the way down to the, the like eight times the security they usually have lining the touch lines on the supporter side. Uh, there was just a, a very obvious and apparent air uh, of a, a club against their supporters and MLS against the supporters um, after that occurred. And it, it just was such a, a tragedy to see and, and to feel uh, because really the supporter groups are what brought me into and, and just completely captivated me uh, with the beautiful game. And so to see this type of thing happen, it, it just breaks my heart. Um, and I can't imagine. I mean, this was one game for me. And luckily, that seems to have mostly turned a corner in Orlando. But I can't imagine these guys in uh, in Chicago and in D.C. that are feeling this on a week-in and week-out basis that, that still have this going. It's got to stop, and, and something has to happen quickly so we can nip this in the bud. And, and I think that's just open and transparent conversations. Uh, like Jordan was saying, that's got to happen with club ownership. It's got to happen with... Uh, MLS brass. The conversations need to be had to, to put an end to this and quickly. Yeah, you talk about the supporter culture getting getting into the beautiful game. I remember sitting in my college apartment and turning on the TV, and MLS happened to be on. And what it was, it was Seattle against Los Angeles Galaxy in Seattle. And I remember watching the supporter group. Uh, Emerald City supporters and thinking this is amazing like you don't see this anywhere else in American sports and there's nothing like it there's nothing like it and it's part of what makes American soccer so great and you talk about camaraderie I remember I went to the 2016 MLS Cup final and after everything that happened, no goals through normal time and extra time, and Seattle winning on penalties, I got to know these people sitting next to me, complete strangers, and after everything that happened, they were inviting me out to drinks post-game. And you don't see this in any other sport in American in America, and I hate to see this being cracked down on from MLS and individual clubs and what you cannot do this is towards MLS you cannot crack down on uh, fans using smoke flags whatever and then show these exact things in your advertisements exactly pick pick what you're going to allow, what you're not, and don't encourage it and say, oh, this is our canned plastic whatever. Allow it, but let it be safe. And that's what Orlando has done. And Orlando has facilitated this smoke. They've facilitated the chance. They've and done all these things that whatever the sport is, how they want to express themselves and have handled it appropriately. And when things go awry, they work on it. And that, for me, that's hard because it's nice to see the communication because it's a family for me. For me, it was Mike and I went to our first Orlando City game together. It was the second game ever in MLS at home 
It was our third or fourth game in MLS. It was against Vancouver. And we were just immediately accepted in. We weren't members. We didn't know all the chants. Sat in the wrong section. Yes, we sat in the wrong section with the wrong scarf. And they accepted us anyway. And we went from being guys that knew nothing about this club to being one of the regulars that we... And we have friends. Every Shout out to... Um, Luke and Graham, who we just saw the other day when we were there, and I'll probably see again next week, and these people that we always see, we always march with, we always stand in the same area because we know them. We don't know much about them, but we know we are all there for the same purpose. And the only other place I've ever felt this way is at certain churches. That's the only analogy I've ever really been able to bring and when you have outside sources threatening that, and in the case of these other supporters, not allowing these expressions, it's a problem. It's, so. it's about creating a culture where everybody can sub and can enjoy the sports. Exactly. So. That being said. Um, we have reached our allocated time. We're actually about ready to arrive at Jordan's house, and I think we should close this up. Do you guys have any final thoughts? Mike especially. Thank you very much for being on the show. Do you have any final thoughts? Uh, super, super glad to be able to be part of two episodes now. Uh, I, I mean, I just... Uh... I don't know. Yeah, that, that last little segment's got me thinking about supporter culture. I just... Uh... I hope we can all just uh, come together to, to rally around the supporter groups and uh, to continue to reach out and be positive with one another. I mean, there's there's rivalry in sports, but as supporter groups, we're all kind of another little subculture. Uh, and so I hope, uh, you know, be, be nice to the other supporters on social media. Let's rally around each other uh, and try to get some, some positive change in the league. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Well, this has been the American Soccer Broadcast. I've been Alex Ryder. You can find me at ghost underscore writer on Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can find me also on Orlando Lions Den Podcast, um, where I talk about Orlando in more detail. Um, Mike, where can the people find you? You can find me on Twitter, uh, a brick in the wall. Both of those eyes are ones. We'd be glad to link up with you there. And Jordan. You can find me on Twitter as J-R-A-Y Hawkins. Uh, tweeting about various things, mostly soccer, mostly Seattle Sounders, Manchester United, Lansing United, and on Instagram as 21JHAWK. Uh, follow me as I'll be touring around the country here in a little bit. And we are ASB Podcast on Twitter and American Soccer Broadcast on Facebook. Look us up, like, subscribe, and give us some feedback. We want to hear what you think of the World Cup, of supporter culture, and all these changes that are happening to our beautiful game. This has been the American Soccer Broadcast, and have a wonderful week, everybody, and enjoy the beautiful game. Mike, do you want to say the magic word? 
There's a magic word. Can people see my face now? Oh my god. <laughs> Party on, people. Be excellent to each other. Peace.